One of the funny things about working with an artist for as long as I did, and that artist was a guy by the name of Michael Jackson, and I was kind of in and around MJ camp for the better part of 18, 19 years. Even though I do events, I do seminars, uh, we've done more than 200 seminars really all, all over the globe. And obviously we had to take 2020 off due to COVID, but uh, we're going to hopefully jump back into it in as little as six weeks from now. But I do all these events. Um, I teach at a lot of recording schools and, uh, and I, I do the podcast. Uh, we do fun little things online from time to time, but and the, please don't, this is going to sound so ego, <laughs> egomaniac. There's really no other way I can, I can, uh, do it. But I sometimes forget that not everyone that uh, might tune into this really knows the big picture, what, what I worked on over the years. So it's hard to, I, I can't do 18 years of being around Michael Jackson in, in one short podcast, but I thought from time to time, it might be fun to kind of focus on one era or one, uh, one project. Now, if you tuned in last week, uh, hopefully you heard me talking to Matt Forger about the Captain EO project. And that was when I first met Michael. Uh, Michael was just five years older than I am. But this tonight, I thought it might be kind of fun to touch on the Dangerous album. Um, there were three albums that I was very involved in with Michael. Bad, Dangerous, and History. And uh, I worked on a little bit of the stuff on uh, bottom of the dance floor, but uh, those were kind of the the big three that, that that I was very involved in. So for the next little while, I want to just dip my toe into an album project that a lot of people refer to as the Dangerous Album. My name is Brad Sundberg, and this is In the Studio, the podcast. Dangerous. It's funny. I'm holding the the dangerous album in my hand. The actual the actual vinyl, uh, the big LP. And a lot of people, you know, ask questions about the artwork. What does the artwork mean? Um, I have no idea. Uh, uh, there were there were some some sketches that uh, that were floating around the studio a little bit. But what I'm holding in my hand is the finished product and. I think it might be a little more fun to give you a sense of what the project felt like, where we recorded it, who was there, and then kind of touch on, you know, a, just a few random thoughts song by song. This might either be a great idea, it might be, <laughs> my chances are it's a terrible idea, but, uh, but it's just something that, that I want to try. So, uh, before I dig in too deep, I'm not claiming to be an expert. I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. This is my perspective. This is, uh, I was there literally from day one, and uh, you could hear interviews from people far more famous than me 
like Teddy Riley or Bill Bottrell or different people. And, uh, and they may have a very different perspective and that's okay. So this is not meant to be a fact finding mission of, you know, Brad Sundberg shares all the deep inner secrets of the dangerous project. No, it's more looking back on it and, uh, things that stand out in my mind, particularly as they relate to studios and the studio experience and how we made the record. So let me start out by saying that the dangerous album immediately, uh, came after a project called Quincy Jones back on the block. And Bruce Swedeen and I were working on back on the block and, uh, Miles Davis and Ray Charles and Dizzy Gillespie and Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald and one after another after another. Uh, and I've mentioned back on the block on a couple of previous podcasts. And at some point I will, I will really settle in and just talk about that album because I think it, it warrants a, a, a full podcast. But we recorded back on the block, most of it at a studio in Sherman Oaks called Record One. Record One was and is owned by uh, Oceanway. Uh, Oceanway is Alan Side's uh, big recording complex located both in L.A. as well as Nashville. So Record One, it's a really unique studio in that uh, it's located on Ventura Boulevard. <laughs> I can't say Ventura Boulevard without hearing... Tom Petty singing Free Fallen. It's it's located on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks. And it's kind of a kind of a cool residential area with some, you know, had some good restaurants and uh very, I don't know, kind of kind of a safe, uh, fun place to be. Very different than Hollywood. Um, it's on the other side of the hill from Hollywood, so it's probably Oh, in light traffic, you know, a 30, 45 minute drive uh, from Hollywood to Sherman Oaks. So the whole vibe of record one is a little more, maybe a bit more of a casual vibe, kind of a valley vibe. So the studio is very much kind of a residential studio, meaning you go in and you kind of feel like you're in a house. It's built around this living room and the living room has a big fireplace in it, and it's a functioning fireplace. It's a gas fireplace, but uh, we had a lot of fires in there, and uh, it has a big kitchen. So we would cook there. I got, we kind of got into hot wings for a long time, and I was making a lot of hot wings, and, and I, somebody else, I don't know if it was Bart, or somebody else was was kind of cooking hot wings with me. And we were just making just insanely hot wings, and uh, getting like the hottest <laughs> sauces you could find. And Michael would eat them. I mean, he would be just right there. I'm like, oh man, I hope they're cooked all the way through. I don't, I don't really want to give Michael Jackson salmonella. So the whole place is very comfortable. Uh, big sofas in the, I never really thought about this before, but in the living room, kind of the center of the studio, there was no TV, which is kind of funny to think about. We had a TV kind of in the kitchen, but in the main living room, there was no TV. And so that's where we would, for lack of a better word, hang out. And 
Uh, Michael might be there, Bruce, uh, if B came for a visit, uh, Steve Picaro, different people, certainly Brad Buxer. The living room was kind of the gathering place. So after Back on the Block, we set up for the Dangerous album. Primarily, at, It was primarily going to be at uh, uh, Record One. And of course, it wasn't called the Dangerous album. It was called Decade. So it was going to be this collection of uh, best of uh, songs with with a handful of with a couple new songs, and in those early days, it was going to be. Now this is where it, it starts getting really murky and even political really fast. So don't uh, I can't say don't quote me because I'm sitting here talking into a microphone, but give me a little bit of grace. Uh, <laughs> Give me a little bit of uh, uh, latitude uh, with a couple of things I'm about to say. But Michael had been working very closely with Bill Battrell for quite some time. And Bill has talked about this, so I don't, I don't feel like I'm necessarily breaking a confidence. And I think there was some hope or handshake that, uh, that Bill was, you know, possibly going to produce this record or was going to be very deeply involved in the record. Then we also had, uh, and Bill was deeply involved, thankfully. Um, I, I'm, I'm Bill Betrell's biggest fan. And uh, so there was, now Bill, Bill did work at, uh, at record one, but, and we'll get to Bill in a few minutes, but, but he was based more at, I think at that point he had his own studio in Pasadena called Toad Hall. And, and I could have my chronology wrong, so forgive me. And then he also did a lot of work at a studio called Smoke Tree. So we had Bill, who was kind of kind of there, but kind of not in the beginning. And then we had, and, and forgive me if I'm stepping on any of uh, Bill's toes, but uh, this is just as I recall it. Then we had a gentleman by the name of Brian Loren. Brian was working, he was kind of a young producer, and he had an engineer by the name of Richard Cottrell. Nice guys. Just genuinely sweet, nice guys. And they were working on some stuff. Uh, so they were in the little room at Record One. And, uh, and then Bruce Swedeen was set up back in the big room, Studio B. So that's kind of how the project started. We had uh, one of our assistant engineers, uh, still a good friend of mine to this day, Bart Stevens, uh, Bart was kind of working with Brian and Richard. Bill was was kind of uh, floating in and out, and and Bruce was uh, was was there. Now, of course, there was no Quincy Jones, and you can uh, surmise and read all the articles and interviews you want. But uh, it was kind of funny, for lack of a better word, because I'd been working so closely with Quincy on the Back on the Block project with Bruce. And now we were diving into a new Michael project, the first project after Bad, uh, without Quincy. So that had its own kind of uh, noticeability, if that's the right word, starting this project without Quincy Jones. So in the early days of that project, Bruce was working on some stuff, and we had Brad Buxer was kind of floating back and forth between working with, uh, with Brian Loran and with Bruce and with Bill. Brad kind of floated between all the teams. 
And then we we did that The Simpsons thing, uh, Do the Bartman and uh, Happy Birthday, Lisa. I think that was in those early, I don't know, the first couple months of the project, the (laughs) the decade project. So we had a lot of the artists from The Simpsons, you know, stopping by and doing doing their voices. and, uh, And it was fun. And again, forgive me because I don't have a chronology in front of me, but this is just, you know, as I recall, um, there was a pretty significant change in personnel. You can believe whatever story you you choose to believe, but basically Brian Loren uh, was, was, was phased out of the project and, uh, and Teddy Riley was brought in and, and the project kind of, took on a new level of bigness. So record one was not a big enough studio for now. We've got some pretty heavy musical horsepower going on. Not, not that we didn't with Brian, but it it was just a different, it was a different vibe. I think we started Teddy in studio a at record one, but that wasn't nearly enough space. Teddy came rolling in with like a semi truck synthesizers and and uh back then i think it was called sound designer and just all these samplers and just this rig so we wound up adding another studio to the the fray and uh that was a studio called larrabee larrabee north over in north hollywood the driving distance from record one to larrabee north i don't have google maps open in front of me but i want to say it was 12 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. So it wasn't like right next door. It was a little bit of a trek to go back and forth. So we put Teddy over there. And then I think Bill, it sounds, it sounds strange and it's kind of hard to explain, but there was just a lot of shifting around. Bill might be at Larrabee for a while. And because uh, Larrabee, I think, had three had two primary studios and then it had a small studio in the back in Larrabee North. I think they were called studios one, two, and three, but so Bill had one of those rooms for a while. Bruce would kind of go in and out of there, but Teddy to the best of my memory was pretty set up over at Larrabee North. Um, so that was kind of his, his domain and then Bruce would go back and forth because um, Bruce was working on a lot of Teddy songs. So Bruce would be set up at record one for big, big chunks of time. And then uh, we might be over at Larrabee for a while. And then sometimes we'd even go back down to Westlake, Westlake down in Hollywood. And again, to people that don't really work in studios, it's kind of like, why not just stay in one studio? Well, it's complicated. Um, studios get booked and maybe we said we were going to be gone whatever month, whatever date. And then the studio books somebody else in there and then we are, we're not done. So then we might have to vacate for a week or two and then come back. We didn't have too much of that problem because we could pretty much lock the rooms out long term, but it was also, um, different studios just have a different feel. And, um, at record one, it's that warm living room vibe and as, as odd as it sounds, but when you listen to a song like heal the world or, uh, keep the faith, keep the faith just kind of sounds like record one to me. It's hard to explain why, but, 
but different rooms have different a different feel. Mm-hmm. Larrabee is more of a rock and roll studio. That's what they're good at. That's the kind of music that they record. So, you know, songs more like Jam and uh, Dangerous, those, you know, Can't Let Her Get Away, those to me sound more like Larrabee. And this might be 90% my imagination, but that's, we just use different rooms for different reasons. When the album was, when the project was firing on all cylinders, we really had kind of these three different production teams that were kind of working together and kind of not working together. There, I think it's safe to say that there was a, you know, a, a fair bit of uh, you know, animosity. I mean, let's face it. A lot of this comes down to money. And the more songs that a producer has on a Michael Jackson album, it certainly isn't going to hurt their, their checking account. And, and it's also, you know, it's ego. It's, uh, uh, you know, kind of prowess in the industry. All that stuff comes into play. So, yeah, yeah, there's competition. On a project like Decade, which, again, started out as a best of and then eventually morphed into a standalone album called Dangerous, there's so many numbers that get thrown around, and uh, I'm not sure anyone really knows what the real number is. But as far as the number of songs that were presented or songs that either Michael was working on or groove ideas or ideas that came through the front door uh, from songwriters, it's pretty safe to say there would have been at least 50 that were, you know, at least ideas. Maybe it's just an idea that uh, Michael noodles around with for a couple hours uh, with Brad Buxer and then it kind of gets shelved and then it morphs into another idea. So there's a lot of... It's not like, you know, on day one, there's, there's a chart on the wall that says, okay, uh, Bruce Wadeen's team is going to work on, you know, Jam and uh, Heal the World, and Bill Betrell is going to work on a song called Black or White and another one called Give In to Me. No, no, there was none of that. Michael had, you know, some songs that he was already working on, one in particular called uh, Will You Be There, which started early in the project. But as far as day-to-day, each producer, you know, the reason they're called a producer is because they're there to produce, and they're not there to copy or hope that something cool happens. They are there to produce music and uh, bring in songwriters and uh, musicians and make this project come to life. So each of these studios, e- even though, and it really was a fun vibe. I don't want to make it sound like you know, they were they were all bad talking each other, but there was competition, and and competition's good. Competition's healthy. I mean, uh, uh, I'm at the end of the day, I'm I, I'm I'm an American, and uh, we we are all about competition and better, faster, cheaper, get the job done. So there was, there was that kind of between the teams. So there was camaraderie, but there was also competition. And I think that's okay. Day to day on the project, I think most of the rooms would be, you know, 
there'd be music coming out of most of the studios. And at any given time on the Dangerous album or, or the Decade album, we would have between three and maybe seven recording studios going every day. Now, we took Sundays off. We usually took Saturdays and Sundays off. But we our days would normally start uh, on the Swedeen sessions. They would start about noon on uh, Bill sessions. Bill Luttrell, I think he was pretty much right around noon also. Uh, Teddy might have been a bit more of a night owl, but Teddy had his kind of his own production team. And those, those guys worked hard and they worked, (laughs) they worked a lot of hours. So any given day, I would usually be at whatever studio I needed to be at probably around 10, 10 30 in the morning, something like that, depending on what we were going to do that day. And I actually, I also had a, a fair bit of freedom on this project my title, if that means anything, was a technical director. And so ultimately, if, if a studio had a problem or a machine had a problem or it kind of, you know, it kind of fell in my lap, I would work with the studio techs and make sure everything was, was working as good as humanly possible. Um, I would work very closely with Bruce Swedeen and uh, I'd been with Bruce now for quite a while so if he needed mic set up, if he needed, if we had to move from record one to Westlake, I would coordinate all of that and line up the trucking company. So it was a fairly mon- monumental project. Uh, we stayed in LA for most of, yeah, yeah. I think we stayed in LA for the entire project. We did have, Teddy had some production going uh, at his studio in Virginia Beach and I'm going to embarrass myself, but I think, I don't know if Jimmy and Terry, they may not have presented anything on this album. They were much more involved on the history project. But, uh, but we had songwriters, we had songs coming in, not just songs, but sounds. And it was Michael, he did this on the history album in particular, but also on the Dangerous album. He just wanted to hear sounds that no one had ever heard before. And so we would literally have like synthesizer programmers and different people just sending in sounds. And uh, so we, we'd get these FedEx envelopes with, you know, tapes and discs in them of uh, just sounds that we'd have to go through and catalog. And uh, so there was just a lot going on. As far as who would be where, it's kind of funny. Bill Betrell and I had a conversation about this a couple of years ago. And Bruce Swedeen was kind of the keeper of the calendar. And so he would, you know, keep, keep this calendar in his, uh, in his Macintosh computer. And, and it would kind of show who was, you know, particularly what songs he was going to be working on and maybe who was going to be at what studio. And then a lot of it fell on, and there was me and we had two production coordinators, Laura and Nina. I'm actually happy that I remember their names without having to look them up. So the two of them would work, uh, you know, getting studios booked, getting musicians booked, kind of the day to day, trying to keep ahead of where we needed to be. So they would work with Bruce in terms of what's going to be happening in the next couple of weeks. I think Michael Jackson is credited as the executive producer of the Dangerous album. 
And that's, I'm not going to take that away from him at all, but it was really kind of, it was kind of a team of people that uh, had to do the day-to-day coordination. And like I, I kind of alluded to Bill Betrell, Bill is, Bill gets a lot of work done very quickly, but he's a little more um, kind of a wild west, kind of what he feels like working on and, uh, you know, what Michael wants to work on. Whereas Bruce likes to be maybe a bit more organized, you know, on this day we're going to do this and on that day we're going to do that. But the calendar changed every day. So it really wasn't, uh, it wasn't like it was a permanent uh, carved in stone kind of thing. Then we had Family Fridays. And this is something that I've talked about extensively in my seminars, which, by the way, we are really, really hoping to get launched again in mid-May. That's the plan. Um, we've got some really cool new material that we're working on. So stay tuned. We are putting something together that I think is going to be really fun for us to get back into the studio with you guys. But we had... <laughs> We had Michael Jackson's personal chefs, uh, the Slam Dunk Sisters, Catherine and Laura. And if you have been around kind of the MJ fan world, uh, you, you might be familiar with those names. If not, not a big deal. But they were both, Catherine, I believe, was a caterer and Laura was, was her assistant. And they would prepare food. They would prepare Michael's food on a daily basis. But on Fridays we would have what's called family Friday. So on Fridays, uh, Catherine and Laura, we, we had security cameras in all the studios. And so, so it got to be, you know, around three o'clock or so, you know, everybody would be watching the TV to see when Catherine and Laura would pull up in their car. And I don't remember, there had to have been some coordination about which studio even they went to. But uh, it seems like for a lot of the project, um, maybe the second half of the project, we were over at Larrabee and, uh, Catherine, Laura would come pulling up and you've just, you've never seen people like jump out of their chairs to, you know, go out and help carry food as, as quickly as, as, uh, when the two of them would show up and we would have a feast every Friday, we would have a no holds bar feast and it was healthy. I mean, relatively, but I mean, roast turkey and roast beef and mashed potatoes and fried chicken and uh, all the veggies and corn and the whole thing. Uh, Michael loved kind of, you know, Southern country style food was, was his thing. And, and he also loved, uh, I think it was vegetarian lasagna was kind of his big deal. So we'd usually have lasagna. So it was not, you know, like a little, you know, little uh, picnic where you, you know you get a half a sandwich it was it was a lot of food and they would feed I mean the the guys in the tech shop and the receptionists and the production assistants and uh, so they would bring in a ton of food and we would all stop but I want to say it was around four o'clock something like that every Friday and have these giant meals and uh, we called them family Fridays and the nice thing, and I kind of mentioned this a few minutes ago, like at record one, we had a, the big living room in the middle of the studio with no TV. And for, for those of you under, you know, maybe uh, 28 years old, um, this may not make sense, but we didn't have cell phones or if we did have cell phones, 
they were phones. We weren't like on the internet and uh, noodling around. I mean, there really was no internet in 1992, at least not that uh, normal people like us would have access to. So we would talk and it was, it was just a fun conversational, tell some stories, hear some stories time together, uh, literally with everyone from Michael Jackson to Bruce's wife, B to my wife, Deb. And, uh, it was just a time. In fact, there were a few times when Deb would bring my oldest daughter, Amanda, and she was just a baby, but it would be just a short time when, when I could, uh, you know, spend some time with them and we would just kind of go find a little corner in the, the living room and, and Michael might come over and play with Amanda. And it was just, it really was like that. Just this very casual, very familiar time that we could all just spend time together. Even though I kind of alluded to, you know, some competition and uh, uh, things on Family Friday, all that kind of got swept under the rug. And uh, it, day to day was actually just fun. There was never a day that I dreaded going to work on, on the dangerous project. This shouldn't be that hard for me to research, but I don't have, I don't have it in front of me, but I think the dangerous album, I think the project went on for the better part of eight or nine months, something like that. And the last couple months are intense. And if you've ever worked on a big production, whether it's a, a movie or an album or something where, you know, or, or what do I know? You know, an accountant in a tax office. I'm not, I'm not putting that down in the least. If you've been on something where there's a deadline and it's just foot to the floor, all hands on deck, we've got to get this done. That's how the end of the Dangerous album was. And it was exhausting. It was absolutely exhausting. Long, long nights, uh, just grabbing a nap when you could, uh, grabbing a shower when you could. A lot of recording studios, especially um, bigger studios, have a shower. And it's kind of for that purpose. Well, it's either for getting a vocal sound if you're working with someone like Michael Jackson and he likes, you know, hearing like cracking two pieces of wood together in a shower. Or um, if you've been working an all night session and you've got to get up and get started again on the next one. So as far as the album itself, I'm not, I'm certainly not uh, going to dissect every song for you, but just for fun, I might uh, go through the list. You know, it's kind of funny. I tell people this in my seminars and I, I don't know if they believe me or not, but it's absolutely true. I very rarely listen to Michael Jackson music. And there's kind of two reasons for that. Number one, it's very personal to me. And when I hear Michael's music, particularly songs that I worked on, it's if I'm, this is going to sound really weird, but like if I'm in a grocery store and I hear, you know, I hear like uh, the way you make me feel or something. It's just, it's so out of context. You know, I'm, I'm standing looking at paprika and ground pepper and I start hearing the way you make me feel uh, coming out of a $6 speaker over my head. And it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. It's kind of odd because even on that $6 speaker, I can still hear Bruce's mix. I can still hear 
uh, the snare drum and the kick drum and the the placement that that he used with those levels. So even on a little, you know, in a grocery store, I, I still kind of get the sense of of uh, how the song sounded. Um, but it's just completely out of context because in my mind, I'm hearing it on a pair of Westlake uh, SM1 speakers that are about the size of a, a, a small car. And that's how I hear it in my head is, is with all of that thunder. So hearing the music out of context uh, is always just, just kind of odd to me. And it is very personal. I worked... A lot of us, this is not the Brad Sundberg show by any means, but a lot of people worked so hard on those songs and on those projects and to make everything sound as good as humanly possible that I kind of need to be in the right place and the right time and the right state of mind, which I've said this in seminars, but I, I like to enjoy Michael's music with a group of people that also like to enjoy Michael's music. And it, uh, it just makes it more special. And it's just my thing, and people don't have to like it or agree with it or whatever. But, but I very rarely sit and listen to Michael Jackson music. And In fact, I'll say almost never, which I guess is kind of strange, but it just has to be, it has to be in the right setting for me. Having said that, I haven't really popped the Dangerous album in in a long time. I have heard some of these songs, and we've been working on some of these songs, building the new uh, the new seminar. It's not like, oh boy, I just listened to, <laughs> I just listened to this whole record yesterday because I didn't. Um, I swear I did. So let me just give you a very quick, almost like an off the top of my head memory uh, from all or most of these songs. And before I do, I'm going to say one more thing. I tended to spend most of my time with Bruce Swedeen and Bill Bottrell. And there's nothing, there's no hidden agenda in that. It's just that uh, Teddy was so self-contained. He had his whole production crew and man, they were just, they didn't need me. And there was only so much that I could do. So I got them started. So as I go through these, I probably won't elaborate on the Teddy songs quite as much just because I didn't spend as much time on those songs, but I'm just going to give you a, an off the top of my head. I have no notes in front of me. What else is new? And, uh, I'm just going to read through these songs and kind of give you one or two quick thoughts. Jam. Jam was obviously a Bruce Woodian song. It was probably, it was among the most vocal tracks that uh, lead vocal tracks uh, probably had more lead vocal tracks than any other song on this album. I think Michael sang the song about 48 times, something like that. I could be a bit high, but it was a lot. And uh, so then you had to go through and, and comp all those vocals down and build one perfect vocal out of all of those 48 takes. Again, I could be Maybe it was a little less than 48, but but it was a lot. Jam was, uh, uh, there was a guy by the name of Renee Moore, who for my old R&B fans out there used to be a, in a band called Renee and Angela. And Renee is kind of a songwriting, or was a songwriting partner with Bruce. And really, really sweet guy. And uh, Jam was uh, was kind of his baby with Michael. So it went through several 
versions before it got to the version that, that you've ultimately heard. And getting the right person to do the rap on Jam was kind of fun also, but that's a different story. Uh, why you want to trip on me? Just not one of my, this is, this is not me rating these songs by any means, but um, not a song that I worked on very much. Um, probably not one of my favorite songs on the record, but, uh, but Michael's vocal on that is, is really cool. And uh, obviously it's a Teddy song. Uh, they worked on that over at Larrabee quite a bit. It's a cool song in its own way. In the Closet, another, another Teddy it's funny when I think about in the closet, I probably, I, I certainly remember, you know, being, you know, in Teddy's room during some of the production of that. But then I also I had kind of another whole personality where I would work with Michael on some of the videos, not in the visuals. <laughs> they're, they're not calling Brad Sundberg for advice on Michael's dancing or visuals, but they would call Brad Sundberg to build these mammoth sound systems that Michael could use, um, for his video shoots. So I provided, uh, the music system for in the closet, which was shot out in the desert outside of Palm Springs. So that was kind of fun. I was out there for a few days and, uh, it was hot and beautiful and it was great. Uh, drives me wild. She drives me wild. Teddy's song. This was a funny song for me because all I heard for weeks uh, I'd pop in into Teddy's studio and it would just be all these sounds of cars starting and uh, factory sounds and clanking pipes. And it was a very industrial sounding song. I didn't, I didn't care for it at all. And so when, and I know that sounds harsh, but it's just, it just wasn't really my, my vibe. So when it came time for Michael to do vocals in there, I very intentionally put myself into the room. And so I kind of, I kind of sat in the back of the room, which was sort of calm. And I actually followed Michael around quite a bit just because I, I knew how to take care of him and get his vocals ready. So I actually sat in the back of the room for, she drives me wild when he was going to do the vocals. I actually got goosebumps. Um, I know that sounds kind of silly, but it was the first time that I heard the melody. And when I heard his vocal, sew that melody into all of those industrial sounds. I was like, you know what? These guys know what they're doing. And it was, it's a beautiful song. Again, not my favorite, but the way that it all came together was, uh, was really, really cool. Remember the time? It's funny because that one is so dominated in my head by the Eddie Murphy video and I did not, I didn't do the music playback for that video. Um, I'm not sure how I missed out on that one, but, but I did not do that one for a, when I do my events. A lot of people remember the time as one of their favorite songs. It's probably not one of my favorites. And I, I don't even have any like crazy memories from it, but it's, it's a nice song. I mean, it was certainly popular. The, the video, uh, you know, brought it to the next level. It's got some cool sounds in it. Not exactly my style, but, uh, that's why they didn't make me the executive producer. <clears throat> Can't let her get away, man. I hate to be tripping up over, uh, uh, over Teddy's songs here. No pun intended, but, uh, another one that 
I didn't work on a lot. Um, it, it definitely has some really cool percussive stuff to it. But as far as like me being hands-on, uh, not, not one that I spent a lot of time on. Then all of a sudden we turn the corner <laughs> and there's Heal the World. I did spend a lot of time on Heal the World. I, I spent uh, worlds and worlds of time on Heal the World. I, I don't even know where to start with that. Sappy, syrupy, MJ, all just from, from one to a hundred. That's Michael Jackson in a song. Bruce mixed this song so many times. It's, it's almost inconceivable the amount of time that I sat in the room with Bruce and he would mix it and mix it and make one little change and mix it again. And it's, it's funny because it got to the point where I just couldn't stand it. I had heard that song so many times. And when I first started doing my seminars, man, nine years ago, are we coming up on 10 years? Uh, well, nine years anyway. When I first started doing the seminars, I'd kind of clown on heal the world. But then I found out in Europe in particular, it's, it's still, it's a really popular song. They sing it like a Christmas time and kids choirs and, uh, probably a bit more so than in the U S but, uh, man, they love heal the world. And over time I have come around the corner and it, it really is a beautiful piece of music. Uh, the string arrangement is, is amazing. It's just that I can't say heal the world without, uh, snickering just a bit because of to people that have not been involved in a project like this, it's almost unfathomable to them how much time we spend on these songs. Uh, for real. It's not hours. It's months. And hopefully, you know, it's a song that, uh, that stands the test of time. And in the case of Heal the World, I think it certainly has. Black or White. Wow. This was a Bill Betrayal song, and I loved this song from the first time I heard it. It was a lot of work went into this song, and yet it's intentionally simple. It's complex, but it's it's raw. And Bill's production style is very different than Bruce's production style. Uh, Heal the World is a Bruce Swedeen, Michael Jackson monster production. Black or White is a Bill Betrell almost minimalist production. I mean, there's still some, some insane guitar parts in there and the way that the song builds. So I don't mean that in a negative way, like, gee, they should have worked harder on it. No, 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 no. It's just that Bill knew what he wanted to do and, and uh, he wanted to keep this just as a gorgeous, simple piece of music, you know, which... You know, you can really get into it. And I've talked to Bill about this. You know, it's a, it's a Southern rock song that's, that's dealing, you know, just head on with racism. And, uh, and there's a whole story behind that that Bill tells. And it, it wouldn't be fair for me to, uh, to go into that because it's his story. But it, it's an interesting ju- juxtaposition to go from Heal the World to Black or White, um, which in their own way have, have common themes, just very, very different styles. Black or White was also, and a lot of people know this, but it was the intent was never to be rapped uh, by Bill Bottrell. But he did, and he just did kind of a test rap, and I, I actually recorded the rap, you know, with Bill just kind of spitting into a microphone. And it was just meant to be, here's an idea. And Michael, of course, liked it so much that it became 
the rap. And I, I could probably look on the liner notes, but he, I think it was, you know, L rap by LBT or something. No, L uh, LTB, which, uh, stood for, for leave it to beaver, which if you didn't grow up in the U S in the sixties probably means nothing to you, but that's okay. Who is it? Wow. Another Bill Betrell song. Absolutely love this song. And if you remember a few minutes ago, I said Jam uh, had probably 40, 46 lead vocal tracks on it. Who Is It is probably five. Uh, Bill does not like to record a lot of vocals. He likes to keep things just simple and pure and raw. So, you know, if, if you want to, uh, you know, compare the different production techniques, uh, listen to jam or heal the world. And you're going to get a good taste of Bruce. Listen to, uh, why you want a trip on me or can't let her get away. And that of course is Teddy. And then you move into who is it and black or white and that's bill. And, and there's more to it than that, but, but Bill's production, uh, production style is so simple and so raw. And when I say simple, I mean, brilliant in its simplicity that I just have tons of respect. Um, give in to me, man. Um, I, there, there's a pretty, uh, pretty long story I tell in my seminars about give in to me. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's such a, it's a song that was literally written in front of my eyes with Bill and Michael. And it was just, it started out with a simple little drum groove and Bill strumming his guitar and Michael uh, singing a few, just a few sounds. And uh, over the course of a couple hours, it, it just blossomed into this amazing rock song that uh, Bill knew how to, there's an American expression, know when to say when. Bill knew when to say when, and he knew what to add and how much to add, and then just stop and just keep it raw. Huge respect. It's a brilliant song in its own way. Then we jump back to uh, Bruce with a song called Will You Be There? I've said on numerous occasions that that's a masterpiece. That That is an absolute masterful piece of music. And it's not a song that you should hear in a grocery store. It's 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 not a song that you should hear on a little... Uh, on a little boom box at the beach. And if that's your thing, that's great. But will you be there is a song that I have to listen to on a huge set of speakers. And I, I actually own, and I'm looking at uh, the speakers that were used to mix that song, uh, Westlake PBS M8s. And this song is just uh, jaw dropping. It's, it's, next level who Michael is as a songwriter and who Bruce Swedeen is as an engineer producer. So just, I don't have enough kind words for will you be there? Keep the faith. Just, just amazing. Just an amazing piece of music. This, you know, obviously it harkens back to man in the mirror. Uh, it's, you know, in a sense, I mean, it's the same songwriters. This is uh, Glenn Ballard and Saida Garrett again. It's just an amazing song. Um, Andre Crouch Choir. It, it never really got the traction, in my opinion, 
that, you know, Man in the Mirror was just the right song at the right time and everything just clicked. Um, Keep the Faith, not so much in terms of, you know, overwhelming popularity, but definitely a song that you should check out. If you have not heard Keep the Faith for a while, there's an amazing story behind the recording of that song that I'm not going to go into right now, but a powerful, powerful song. Michael just at, in my opinion, one of the best vocal performances that he's ever done and just foot to the floor, not screaming, but taking his voice right to that, that edge of how, how hard can I push this? So I love that piece of music. Gone Too Soon was a, was a tough one. Obviously, it's a Bruce Swedeen song. Bruce didn't write it, obviously, but um, Michael Wander, he felt very strongly about writing a song about losing his friend Ryan, uh, Ryan White. And it's a heavy song. There, it's, just, it's just a hard, heavy song. Not the type of song that I'm probably going to pop in for some, you know, <laughs> some relaxation with a glass of wine. But uh, but that's okay. Gone Too Soon is the only song that my, Michael kicked me out of the room. I've been in the room when Michael sang vocals, and I'm not trying to brag, but scores and scores of times, um, whether it's demos or background vocals, lead vocals, scratch vocal. Um, I've just been there for a lot. I've recorded him a lot and I've, uh, been in the room when someone else is recording him a lot and gone too soon. I'll, I'll, I'll remember this night for the rest of my life, but Michael was going to record that song. And it was, I think it was in studio B at record one. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, which is the, the big room at record one. And I'm sitting there next to Bruce and and you have to kind of put yourself into the scene just a little bit because for vocals, no one was allowed in the room. It was generally just Bruce or Bill or Teddy. And, you know, and there might be a couple other engineers or there might be, you know, a programmer. I mean, certainly Brad Bucks or different people, but it wasn't like guests were coming in to hang out during vocal dates. It just was not permitted. And it's, it's very respectful during a vocal date. You're paying attention. You're, the lights are down really low. Everything about a vocal date is very choreographed. Is that the right word? We, we try and avoid surprises as much as we can. Michael's going to have his hot water. I'm going to have everything prepped for him the way that I know how to do it. And I want him to focus on vocals. I don't want him to focus on you know, Hey, who's in the control room, you know, that I don't recognize back then we didn't have cell phones that we played with, but it wouldn't be a time that you'd be sitting there, you know, texting your friends and, you know, taking selfies when Michael's going to sing a vocal. That's just not how we did it. So even though I was very, I was very comfortable being in the room, uh, when he was singing and I think he was pretty comfortable and understanding that I had to be there to, you know, assist in any way that I could, if he needed anything, but I'm gone too soon. He actually, I'll never forget. He called Bruce out to the studio and it was just the three of us. It was just me, Bruce and Michael. And, uh, he called Bruce out to the studio and whispered in his ear and I'm sitting there in the control room like, Oh man. And, uh, sure enough, Bruce came in and, and he, Bruce always called Michael smelly. And he said, you know, smelly wants, you know, he doesn't want you to be in here for this vocal. 
and I was fine. I mean, I, I went out and sat out in the lounge and made a pot of coffee or something, but, uh, but it's a very intimate song and a very heavy topic. And Michael, uh, just wanted to do this, you know, in essence by himself, just with Bruce capturing it. So anyway, kind of a little backstory on that that maybe you weren't expecting dangerous, uh, the title track. So dangerous brings back a lot of memories for me because it was Bill Bottrell's song. And I always loved Bill Bottrell's version. It's maybe a little grittier, maybe a little more raw. And I'm not going to pretend to know, you know, what Bill felt like, but at some point, uh, Michael came to Bill and said, Hey, I, you know, I want Teddy to, you know, kind of put, some of his special Teddy sauce on this song and see what happens. So then it kind of became, you know, Teddy's song and then Bruce is mixing it. And, uh, I'm sure that sucked. I'm, I'm sure for Bill, it was a little, little frustrating that his song was, was kind of, you know, being sent a slightly different direction in the end. I love Bill's version. I do like Teddy's version. Teddy's version is certainly a lot, uh, slicker and more produced. Bill's version is a little more raw and, and kind of where I like my music, but, uh, but that's okay. As far as there's so many songs that did not make this album, you know, for all time, uh, the Steve Picaro number, that song is just amazing to me. It's, it's, it's a really, really beautiful song that I, you know, if I were in charge, I probably, uh, that's why I wasn't in charge, but that's one where I probably could have slid something out of the way and moved that one in. Someone put your hand out. Uh, you know, sometimes I bang my head against the wall and go, how could that not have made the record? But that's a song that works for me. It doesn't mean that it's going to work for everybody. You know, someone like Michael is smart enough to know that. And it was, there was so much going on it wouldn't be out of question for Michael to ask, you know, Hey, do you like this song? You know, what do you think of this song? It doesn't mean that we would have like, you know, every Monday morning have a big vote or whatever. Cause it really did come down to Michael and Bruce and Bill and Teddy as to what songs were going to make it and which songs weren't. But I think Michael did, you know, he liked when he saw that we were enjoying the songs. And so there were certainly songs that, <laughs> that I was campaigning for. I mean, I really wanted for all time. I just thought this is just a gorgeous piece of music and doesn't mean I'm going to go beg, you know, oh, please, can you put this on the record? But I think, you know, we were okay with, you know, letting it be known that, you know, Hey, I really dig this song or the monkey business. I mean, that's just such a fun song. And where Bill was going with that, was was so much fun and so powerful and i i just love everything about that song so well and then then earth song i mean earth song we were working on during this project and it just wasn't ready yet and i think it was it was wise that that got pushed back to the history album but when you've got those kind of songs that don't make the record you start getting a sense that, you know, this is, this is really a powerful project that we're working on. That's, that's just kind of a quick, I, I hope you thought it was quick. I really haven't, I haven't really held this, this album in my hand in a long time, but it's kind of fun, you know, seeing that collection of songs and hearing them in my head. 
there's just so many faces, you know, I, I still remember who was at which studio and, you know, everyone from the receptionist to the, the techs and, uh, the techs are the guys that, you know, if we have a problem with the console during the day, big studios like that have technicians that literally stay all night and they, they just fix problems. They're kind of the unsung, unsung heroes of the industry. But it's those people that I remember. We, we had special guests that would stop by the studio. <laughs> one or two that come to mind that were, uh, we had the Secret Service uh, come one day. We had a little bit of notice. I think Michael's office told us that something was going to happen. But Secret Service comes and I mean, they, they, whatever word they use, you know, swept, you know, they checked the building for any sort of uh, uh, whatever the Secret Service checks for and just made sure the place was completely safe. And who comes in but Nancy Reagan? I mean, Ronald Reagan's wife, Nancy Reagan. And she's friends with Michael Jackson. I mean, that's, you know, who, who gets to say that? You know, Nancy Reagan and Michael hanging out in the lounge. That's, it's things like that that, you know, stand out in my mind about this record. Princess Stephanie, Princess Stephanie of Monaco, obviously the girl that uh, did In the Closet. Just beautiful, sweet, really nice young woman. And, uh, but it's like, you know, you're, <laughs> you're an actual princess. This is crazy. It was just stuff like that, that you, it's not that you, got used to it, but it was just, it was cool. And yet it didn't completely surprise you. It's like, okay, uh, yeah, the first lady is going to be stopping by today or the former first lady, I guess at that point. So overall it was, it was an amazing project and people, you know, sometimes ask, you know, Hey Brad, what's your favorite MJ project, MJ album. And, and I, without hesitation, I say dangerous. Michael's singing was, was just on point. It was a fun album. It's an album that it's got that sense of, of collaboration and also competition between these three production teams. And it's, it's really like, I don't think anything has ever been done before or since. It's just a a very, very powerful and fun and musical record and a project that I'm very proud to have been a part of. I'm going to leave it at that. If you want to comment about what your favorite song is on this album or your favorite uh, MJ project in particular, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. So stay safe, stay tuned. We are going to be sharing some info about upcoming events, primarily in Orlando, Florida. And we hope that as we start to see light at the end of the tunnel, We're going to be back on the road again and uh, sharing some more seminar events with you in the studio. So my name is Brad Sundberg. Thank you so much for hanging out. And I hope you have a great and very blessed week. Stay safe. In the Studio, the podcast is produced by Maddie Sundberg. Graphics and creative input by Andy Healy. Special thanks to Golden Age Project and Tributaries Cables. My name is Brad Sundberg, host of In the Studio, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.